Hello and thank you for joining us today for this week's journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm Caroline Scott and in this week's episode we'll hear about the rise of fake news from experts in the field of misinformation and of course what we as publishers can do to try and tackle it. Two weeks ago we reported on a panel discussion held at City University about fake news. That's the deliberate spread of incorrect information with intent to mislead. The event, organised in conjunction with the Media Society and the Student Publication Association, aimed to look inside the problem and how to fix it. The speakers consisted of James Ball, Special Correspondent for BuzzFeed UK, Alistair Reid, a digital journalist specialising in social media, and Megan Lucero from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. The article on our site got a lot of media attraction as we heard at the event how journalism business models in the digital age are actually fueling the misinformation ecosystem. Just think about it, the media demands trust from audiences, but business models favour clicks, views and shares. The need for publishers to be first with the story in order to gain ad revenue is working against accurate information and in favour of sensationalism and hoaxes. This results in a lack of trust in journalism and can severely impact the relationship we as publishers have with our audiences. In fact, Megan Lucero explains why we should refrain from using the term fake news ourselves, as she believes it is often used as a weapon to delegitimise the press. Every time we say it, every time we write it and every time we use it, we are uh, consciously perpetuating that and in some cases I think subconsciously continuously tell ourselves and other people that uh, the press are fake, um, the media is fake, and that we are devalued and delegitimate. So I just think that term encompasses a lot of things. It encompasses propaganda, um, lies, misinformation, disinformation, um, but also a very small sliver of that is bad journalism. And I think by putting a huge blanket over it, the Trump administration and others have helped to catapult something that has been around for ages. Um, all of those things I mentioned has been around for ages but we've taken that very recently and been able to use it as a weapon to do this, and I just personally don't want to use that term. Indeed, the term fake news has been used so widely that it's difficult to pin down and define. For example, there are some stories out there that are completely fabricated, but some are based on accurate information that are sensationalised and taken to ridiculous extremes. Here's James Ball from BuzzFeed UK to explain. Fake news, as we kind of narrowly define it, is for me a story which is entirely false on a website that's often a hoax made to look like CNN or ABC, um, you know, completely fabricating a story that, you know, a Clint Eastwood um, endorsed Hillary Clinton, that's a real one, that um, Hillary had a stockpile of 30,000 guillotines uh, ready to kill anyone who owned a gun. Um, genuinely, that one did millions. Um, you know, this kind of entirely fake information and it's the pantomime villain in the room behind what's going on right now which is a kind of post-truth bullshit era because in all honesty you can put around misinformation or disinformation right now by accurately quoting the president of the united states and so you can shut down as many fake news sites as you like if you don't start addressing things like information sort of outright fake information but what we call hyperpartisan news um, things really spun out of all context. You can have accurate information given really undue prominence. If you look on extreme sort of anti-Muslim groups or things like that on Facebook, it's very rarely that incidents are entirely fabricated. They're exaggerated 
and then linked to 15 or 20 times a day, giving you the impression that it's happening with that frequency where it may all be linked to one thing. Um, there are the times where we create these things and sort of radicalize ourselves. Um, lots of people on the center-left right now, um, looking at my own filter bubble, share very elaborate strings full of theories of this is what's really going on when Trump does this. This is the secret plan. Um, and have turned into exactly the kind of sort of conspiracy theorists drawing string together on a pin board that they imagine the far right to be. Um, you know, we're all kind of falling into this kind of information smog. And if we think we can tackle it by getting Google to cut off advertising to a hoax website or getting Facebook to put fact checkers think this is questionable on a hoax piece, I mean, we're kind of kidding ourselves. So it's, I think it's good that we're talking about these issues, but we shouldn't just pretend that fake news is our only problem. And I'm absolutely on the side of uh, Megan when we say we should not just start calling anything we dislike fake news. Of course, bending the truth for political gain is nothing new. It's called propaganda, which we all know, and its uses stretch back to ancient times. But just how did we get to the place where fantasy was so readily accepted as fact? Here's Alistair. I think social media has had a huge part in that because, I mean, if we go back before the two, before Brexit, before the, the uh, US election to a year, 18 months ago, one of the major issues was that anyone could publish anything they wanted and the barriers to entry for being able to reach an audience of thousands, if not millions, have completely collapsed. If we go, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you would need a, a radio station or a TV station or a printing press to reach the amount of people which anyone today can, can reach with a few clicks. Um, and when, you know, five years ago with the Arab Spring, everyone was hailing social media as a fantastic way for people to, to have a voice where they couldn't, to be able to talk about certain issues and things which were happening in their communities, which weren't uh, being covered before. But then that started to be used and, and, and weaponized for people who wanted to make money um, or wanted to push a particular social or political agenda. Uh, and it's not, obviously, it's not completely down to social media, but that fact that anyone can publish anything uh, and much easier than you know, 15 years ago when blogging was coming under similar, um, was being talked about in a similar way, has made it much more of an issue um, that we, we're struggling to deal with now. Okay, thanks. I just added a quite broader point that I agree with what you're saying, but that um, I think what's really sad is what's been is exploited this very beautiful part of humanity, which is this trust. So journalism has always held this, journalists have one of our greatest weapons is that we have this trust and integrity with our readers. And that started from back when people would trust what they read. You picked up the paper, you picked up the pamphlet, you picked up whatever it was, and you read it. And your worldview was the paper you subscribed to. So if you were in a certain rural part of the town and you picked up a certain paper and that's the paper you read every week, that was your worldview, that was your bubble, that was what it was. But still you trusted what you read and you chose what you trust. And I think what happened was people just started as the world started changing and information just being inundated and inundating ourselves with information, what happened was we just started trusting what we were reading. And that's what I mean about exploiting this very beautiful thing, which was people were trust, trusting what they read. The problem is, is that we have to change that. Um, we have to 
critically assess what we look at, um, and we have, we have to be critical thinkers of it before the kind of the loons, as you said, would be the ones on the streets screaming propaganda, um, whereas now we're kind of seeing it um, in ha they're having bigger megaphones and faster ones. Um, so I just, I just wanted to comment on that, that element of it, that I still think there is opportunity for journalism to kind of regain that and to hold that, that trust and that integrity. But um, it's, it's finding that way through, through the point where anyone can. So um, I think we have to look at kind of how a lot of the business models of the internet, whether in <clears throat> fake news or what we would call mainstream news, work against accurate information and work in favour of either sensationalism or outright hoaxes. Um, like just as a rough straw poll, how many of you in the room saw the video of the female cyclist being harassed by a white, white van man and ripping off the thing? Yep, quite a lot. It's great content, it's the kind of stuff we all read, it's the kind of stuff we all click. And essentially, that was unchecked footage bought up by an agency that buys a ton of this stuff um, and then sold on to news outlets for between 150 and 400 pounds a pop. And anyone who bought it up and just whacked it up very quickly with a headline got hundreds of thousands, if not millions of views. Um, and of course, no one actually checked if the incident actually happened, if it was real, if it was anything. Um, after a few hours, the Sun looked into it, got a quote of someone sort of suggesting it was questionable. But by this point, the agency's made its money, the websites have made their money, and several just changed their headlines, headlines to go, but is it real? We kind of, you know, while we're demanding that the media sort of trust mainstream outlets and put us on a higher pedestal, uh, our sort of business models often favour getting the clicks. If you'd have stopped and waited to verify and check, you'd have missed out on the traffic altogether and got no revenue. So we actually reward running this unchecked. And we have agencies and a whole business model and ecosystem that favours minimal checking and gives us all sorts of vulnerabilities for people who would use mainstream outlets for misinformation to get in. Now, Fake news has these same models. They work either through get millions and millions of people to do advertising. It's the ultimate end of it. You have no cost to get your content because you make it up. And then you get audiences of sometimes tens of millions to sort of the really, really epically successful stories. And you make your money that way. Um, you know, we've all heard about the Macedonian teenagers getting $5,000 a month, but there are places that use it to sell products, there are places that use it to um, get you to sign up to binary options trading, um, where people then lose tens or hundreds of thousands. There's money there. If you're hyperpartisan, if you're something like the Canary, there is no money in doing a measured analysis of Corbyn's policies or saying, maybe Theresa May's policy will inadvertently increase homelessness. Let's try and encourage her not to. It's bombshell new Theresa May revelation as she wants to throw babies in the street so she can watch them die and the mainstream media won't tell you. So, you know. That's, that's a big hook for a lot of these sites as well. It's the mainstream media. This is what the mainstream media doesn't want you to know. And yeah. often that's because either the story being told there is completely blown out of proportion or it's completely fabricated. Yeah. And, and much a, of the time it is being a lot, told. A lot of this stuff comes from the mainstream media and then just gets a flashy head. Yeah. Like if you want to, like the canary sort of core ingredients are going viral because I looked into it, is bombshell an evil Tory and either the BBC or Laura Koonsberg personally covering it up. Um, 
And so their whole business model is, again, on getting viral things, getting huge clicks. And the things that do that for them are kicking away any sort of belief in a sort of shared sense of politics and kicking away faith in the most trusted media institutions. So for as long as the money is on the side of us undermining sort of media, undermining sort of trust and undermining fact-checking, we're going to start to see these things carrying on. We can't ignore the economics and just go, tut, tut, people who do sensationalist news stories are bad people, aren't they? It's like, not going to fix anything. So what can publishers do to help tackle the misinformation ecosystem? Take a listen to how the panel discuss this issue, starting with Megan explaining that journalists should be taking responsibility on themselves to think about the language they're using and the verification techniques they're implementing to help build trust with audiences. Language is powerful. We're journalists, we know that. As, as James sort of just explained, that just some of those words alone can grab people. But similarly, I think you can grab trust of people as well. Um, you know, similar, what I just talked about at the beginning about um, the term that we've talked about tonight, about how you can call those very different things. If you just sat and really analyzed what is it that that is? Is that a lie? Is that bad journalism? Is that what, what, what is it? Um, similarly, that's happening with, you know, for instance, with the alt-right, that they're using that as a term to, to cover things up. And I think that as journalists, it just takes a little bit more time, but it's important to identify is it, what is it that, that, that we're describing? It is, is it a fascist act? Is it a homophobic act? Is it a racist act? And to take that time to really do the journalism that digs into that, rather than the easier one, which is to just say, slap the alt-right on it. Unfortunately, that is what they want you to call it, because it softens it, and that's exactly what they want. But actually, AP laid out a style guide for not using the alt-right, um, that term, um, unless you're quoting it, and unless you're, unless you're specifically stating it, someone has called themselves of that. Um, and I think that was really, really interesting. And I think there's this new call in journalism that times are changing, as I mentioned. We have to constantly evolve with that. And I think as journalists, really thinking about how we do that, thinking about the language. And again, the reason why I said, as I don't like using that term, is because it's being used against us, and yet the worst perpetrators of it are the media themselves. So really thinking about the language that we use and how we describe actions and how we, how we do that, and just be, like I said, really great, really keep great journalism at a high bar for that, I think is really important. I, yeah, I, I was going to say, I completely agree. But the, the issue is that the, at the moment, like James was saying, and this is not to kind of take away from the point at all, but that the, the, the business model keeps undermining all of those when it's much easier and cheaper and more rewarding to just chuck out anything that might get the clicks. And there's something um, Mark Lissell, who was the founder of Storiful, said at the weekend at Miss Infocon, which was you could not design a better business model to erode trust in journalism than the one that we have now. Um, because it is, as, as he said, it's designed to, to reward the clicks and the sensationalism. Um, and how we turn that around, um, there's been a lot of discussions recently about you know, what would a newsroom or a news organization designed to for, designed for trust, to or trust involve. Um, a lot of the places and organizations which have a, a paywall or have some kind of meter paywall are focusing on that much more than they are on the simple volume of articles that they put out there, but then that limits people's ability, limits people's access to good information by their ability to pay for it, which is fundamentally a bad thing in my view. Um, but I, I don't think we're at a point yet where we found a, a, something that connect those two issues and problems. 
so, I agree. Sorry. So, yeah, so I, I think I'd like to flag one bad and one sort of good sign on business model. And sort of one of the worst bits of the whole side of mainstream business models right now is um, you, you probably spotted them around on pages, but um, sponsored links or more from the web or that kind of stuff that's often sort of designed to look like part of the website you're browsing. And these are sort of called um, sort of content promotion links. The, the main companies are Revcode, Outbrain, and Taboola. And these guys essentially push fake news. Um, lots and lots of the material in there is outright false stories or incredibly low-quality information. Um, you know, I sort of saw on uh, a UK we website... Um, you know, Susan Boyle's lost 170 pounds. You won't believe what she looks like now. Um, like, anyone who works in Imperial will regard it as pretty unlikely anyone can lose 170 pounds and not be dead. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, she hasn't. Um, and, you know, these are quite well-paying adverts. Places like running them, they've actually become quite an important part of the business model, but they're also what drives traffic to incredibly low-quality or downright fake news news sites. Um, you know, I was on foreignpolicy.com, which is not a kind of low-rent click factory. And on the right-hand side was uh, exposed just how spoiled Baron Trump is, and he's only 10. And of course, it wasn't a foreign policy story. It was to one of these incredibly sketchy sites, picking on a 10-year-old. Um, and as long as we're sort of funding both sides of the fake news war, it's not going to be very good for trust. But not every internet business model serves fake news. And this is going to fall into the, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? I do think BuzzFeed's is quite good. And you may or may not have noticed, and a lot of people don't notice, there are no display adverts on BuzzFeed. Um, and kind of as an internet native newsroom, it does things like our trending news teams who do the kind of viral content and the uplifting stuff follow the same standards as the rest of the newsroom. They reach out and they contact the people in the videos before they run them. If they think they're questionable, they'll hang fire and not put them up for a few hours. On live stories, we have sort of channels where we drop in information or footage, and the reporters who are covering the event try and verify it. And if it turns out to be wrong or fake, it goes immediately into a debunking post it's not done as a separate tact on activity. It's the actual reporting process reveals stuff that's false. And so we put that straight out there clearly. Um, BuzzFeed works by sponsored content. Um, a different team makes posts. So essentially what BuzzFeed's trying to do is work out what's viral and stay trusted. The idea with a BuzzFeed headline is if you see it, you get what it promises. And so if we say we've got a revelation or a big news story or an investigation, We've got it. If we've got a headline that says literally 17 dog pictures for if you're having a bad day, <laughs> you will get 17 dog pictures and they will cheer you up. Um, it's not oversold. And so there are sort of internet native business models as well as subscription models that might work. And the early signs on BuzzFeed are that it does work and it does fund journalism. There may well be lots of other models that are open and pay as well. So I was just going to, I know we've been on this for a while, and this one's me. I was just going to add that there's a, there's a 
big issue linked to that as well, though, going back to social media, and we've been beating up on the, the industry for a while now, but going back to social media is that there aren't clear enough flags, clear enough, uh, you know, the, the text isn't big enough, the, the logos aren't there, for people to be able to identify which publisher is which. And so when people are scrolling, when we're scrolling through our newsfeed, um, it's very hard when we're just looking through it to know where certain parts of piece of information and headlines are coming from. So it's fantastic that BuzzFeed are doing that kind of really pushing for trust and being very clear and transparent about uh, uh, their headlines and what they're publishing. But when people are scrolling through their newsfeed, very often they don't actually notice the difference between a news organization uh, with, a, with a history of, of high editorial standards and journalistic rigor and everything else and just some nonsense social publisher. And there are many times that I've seen looking through that there's a video that's been going around for ages um, from the Uber riots in Paris from a couple of years ago. And it regularly gets shared saying this is, you know, this is the result of immigration, this is the result of, you know, how's that assimilation going Paris, that kind of thing. And people don't know the difference between a serious journalistic organization and just one of these social publishers. And even when it comes up in the comments on one of these, they say, you know, this isn't true, this is Uber riots, this isn't Muslims rioting, this isn't immigrants rioting because they can't get benefits. It's the Uber riots. And someone else replies, how do people know it's Uber riots? One side of the media is lying at the end of the day, and I can't tell which. And this is something that maybe the, uh, the, the social networks maybe need to, or the conversation between news organizations and social networks, which is becoming more and more common at the moment, that clearly identifying who the publisher is and knowing when they're a trusted organization that's been around for ages um, or whether they are, that's a website that's been around for, for two months or even less, whether that would factor into that trust process for, for people uh, on social media. And that's something, sometimes it's difficult for us to, to take that secondary view uh, outside of the industry, how people actually perceive it. But I think that's inc incredibly important to, to look at how to take that perspective if we're going to break down that trust and understand it better and really reach audiences more. Can I ask, though, how, what are you suggesting that they figure out what is trusted and what isn't? Because I've seen attempts lately of trying to create these lists of these are trusted and mm. these aren't. And a researcher did it, and people started creating, like, plugins so that you could put them on your browsers. And it turns out, for instance, one of those on there was Private Eye and the Onion. Um, and people obviously had issues with that. They're like, well, sat when does satire, fake news, you know, and it just started having this very kind of odd line between it. And then they had to take the whole thing down um, and start over again. And I think also the amazing thing about the internet, I believe it should be open and it should be free. That was what it was invented for. The moment we start kind of creating, like, these ones should rise and these won't, that's where the problem starts coming with the monetization and the kind of capitalistic nature of what the internet is. The great thing about the internet was that Someone could do a video on YouTube and, be, and can raise themselves to become a, a superstar. They could write a blog and, be, and get a book contract. Like, that was the great thing about it. it. It levels the playing field, which, yes, of course, it's now leveled our playing field. And anyone is posing as a, as a publisher and as, a, as a, a news organization. But I don't know. I'm personally not of the belief that, that regulating that and forcing that is going to help. And I, I absolutely agree. But when people share something that is misleading, um, if it fits well... The way social media is designed is for peer-to-peer -peer sharing, for one, and for visual information. And we are much more likely to believe things if it's told to us by our friends or our family and if it's a piece of visual information. So both of the two things which make social media so effective and so popular are equally two of the big things that make um, fake news so effective or, or misinformation so effective. And when that confirms 
people's biases, confirmation bias, you may have heard of it. If, if, if a piece of information confirms um, what we already understand about the world or what we want to believe the world is like, then we're more biased to believe it. You get a literal thumbs up from someone on Facebook if they, if they share that. And that is positive reinforcement for sharing something which isn't true. Um, and there isn't any negative reinforcement at the moment. And if, you know, a hundred, a thousand years ago, if there was some guy in, in the village who was going around telling lies all the time, there would be social repercussions for that. Um, you know, negative social repercussions for that. And there aren't really, that's, that's much that's been weakened a lot in the age of social media where the positive reinforcements for sharing something which may not be true but fits with what your friends and family believe in are much stronger and much clearer than the negative reinforcements. And often, to be honest, if you start pointing out and being that, um, you know, pointing out in the comments, some people will be like, well, how do you know this? Like I mentioned before, how do you know this? Which side is lying? I can't tell the difference. Or maybe get attacked for trying to push what is called, uh, you know, a, a propaganda for the, the mainstream media. Um, it has become very difficult to have that kind of, that, that negative social effects of lying in the, in the digital age. So, and some of the fixes for this kind of stuff can kind of make it worse. I mean, sort of at the very basic level, if you have sort of relatively strong politics, even if they're not that strong, just try posting on Facebook or on Twitter something you know most of your people will disagree with or sort of will actually go, you know, literally if it's just even if you're on the left or centre-left, Post something just showing that UK inequality statistically hasn't actually risen in the last six years and enjoy spending two hours being screamed at about how you hate the poor and uh, are a massive Tory and it's always revealed it. You know, sort of vice versa if you're a U US Republican and you want to post something saying tax cuts don't fund themselves because they don't. Um, saying something that's true but doesn't fire up your base is a pretty miserable thing to do online. Um, but sort of the kind of fact-checking culture and that we almost fetishize fact-checking as this wonderful sacred act isn't great because think about when you look for a fact-check, you look for it for a claim from a politician or a media outlet you don't like. You don't tend to look for it for something that you believe and you think is true. Um, and so firstly, it reaches a much smaller audience generally and it doesn't re reach the people who might go for it. But even more than that, the fact-checking culture can be really brilliantly hijacked. Um, so how, how many people paid attention to the Bowling Green massacre? Um, yeah, so in the wake of um, Kellyanne Conway, um, a Trump spokeswoman, basically inventing uh, an attack by Islamic extremists, um, it's a sort of misremembered FBI sting. Sean Spicer released a list of 78... Um, terror attacks linked to, um, you know, what they call extreme, extreme Islam that he said the media had underreported. And pretty much every single mainstream outlet took the bait and triumphantly ran recaps of how they'd covered each of these 78 attacks. Now, that doesn't prove Spicer wrong at all. You can still call that undercovering. But essentially, the media triumphantly catching out Trump or catching out Trump's spokesman ran lists of dozens and dozens and dozens of terrifying attacks, many of which had killed dozens of people uh, that were committed by, you know, supposed Islamic extremists. Just How, when they're struggling with yeah, the immigration ban. Just when ban. they're trying to get an immigration ban through. 
So yeah, well done. You may have challenged him on the small print, but you've run a massive thing pushing the exact agenda. You know, you got played. Um, and this sort of fact-check culture lends itself to that sort of exploitation. It's not only pretty often ineffective, uh, Google the backfire effect if you want extra stuff on why it's just a waste of time on that, but it can really easily be played to spread false narratives um, or questionable narratives. I would just add to that, that I think we can't... I think that you're exactly right, but what we can do is sort of hold... Um, politicians to account. So I do not think there is a high enough cost at the moment for their lives. And I think that is where it can be. We can't necessarily go in and regulate people's personal lives. It's the same as saying, you passed this note, which was completely untrue to your friend. Um, should someone come in and say, you passed a lie to your friend? Now that we have social media, that can be done differently. But what we can do is de-incentivize that by, if you want to become a council person, if you want to become anyone larger than the kind of, in any public body, we can start actually saying that these people should be <clears throat> held to account um, and that there should be more, there should be political repercussions for that. Um, again, that, that, that's out of my hands to do it, but I, do, I don't think that there is, um, I just don't think there's enough of a cost at the moment for that. Is that something you're hoping the Bureau's project will tackle? I do think to some degree, I mean, that, I mean, I'm not going, we're not doing the, this local project to kind of go and try to bring, bring down a bunch of, you know, MPs, but it, it really just is about being able to hold bodies to account. I think um, I work in data journalism. This is, this is my area. And I think that at, what I've learned over the kind of five years that I've worked in it has seen it change so much, which has gone from something people really value to. Now it's just part of this sort of global massive, like you see a massive number in a national paper and you're like, wow, that's a lot of money and the number just slips through your head and you don't care anymore and how does it affect your life? Um, but when we can start bringing it back to local communities, I think right now people are going local rather than global because what are we gonna do? You're overwhelmed with what's happening. You don't feel like you can make a difference in the world. You don't understand how you're gonna change anything and people are just getting depressed and shutting down whereas there are people kind of doing sort of the reverse effect. You're seeing all these kind of grassroots movements but I think an interesting element to that is, as I mentioned earlier, not only is it needed, we need to hold those public bodies to account because we don't wanna to get to where it's too late where you're, you actually have really corrupt, corrupt council men and women and, and MPs and whatever it is and that haven't been serving your interests for ages and what are you going to do about it now? It's about really kind of claiming that back and I think journalism and investigative journalism is a really interesting way of doing that. And interestingly, it is a sort of kind of a claim back which is to this alternative, not alternative media, but you know, it's not, it's not the national newspapers. It, it is, it, these are, we aren't setting up new hyper-locals either. We're about going into what is established in those areas and helping bring back. You used to be able to go and pick up your local paper and find out what was the parish um, council running that week or what were the local elections and you'd be able to see details of these people. Well now that's just shrinking and you don't have that anymore. Where are people going to get that, that information about these people that are um, going to be serving the interests of your community? So I think that is quite quite an interesting and, and powerful thing. We've seen it in, in the US with the sort of town halls and people kind yeah. of coming up with that. And I think there, um, yes, there's less of a sensational demand to have it in the UK, but I'd argue actually the preventative measures of that are more important than ever. And you can check out our YouTube channel for more from the event. We'd like to say a big thank you to the Media Society, City University and the Student Publication Association for the audio for this podcast. And we will see you next week for another episode from journalism.co.uk.